You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. And of course, it's an incredible blessing for me to see some of those shots and some of those very familiar faces from Iquitos. I know a few of you have been there. And just by way of reminder, the door is always open. So if that video or anything that you heard in that was uh, stirring something in your heart to consider a trip to Iquitos, uh, please let me know. We would love to help you arrange that. Um, but as Ted said, we are gearing up for summer outreach uh, in the back of the sanctuary. Some of you have received this via email. Some of you still prefer a hard copy. There are hard copies of our schedule. But as you've heard me say every summer that we've done this, this is just a piece of paper with some dates and some times on it. And what we're going to talk about today is what really we hope is what stands behind this and what we are hoping to see the Lord do this summer. So if you have received an email copy of the schedule, that's wonderful. If you have not, I encourage you just to pick up a copy of this schedule in the back and just keep these dates in mind. Like I say, this is just a piece of paper with some dates on it. It's a few Fridays and a couple of Sundays, and this is just the tip. And what we really want to do is we want to see the Lord moving power this summer. And so what we're going to do today, many of you have been reading along in the Gospel of Matthew with us, and if you have been doing so, you probably realize that today we finish up the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. So what we're going to do today is dip into Matthew in a couple of different places, talk about a few things, and then really hopefully allow the Lord to get us excited, get us anticipating what's in his heart for the city this summer. That's what we're going to do this morning and a bit into this afternoon. So I'm going to be very, very intentional right at the beginning. One of the main goals of this time together is to get us motivated to do outreach this summer. You know, for many of us, it is challenging. It is intimidating. It makes us uncomfortable. And that's okay. A lot of things that the Lord asks us to do are not what is the easiest, not what is the most pleasant. And so if you're feeling a little intimidated, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, that's okay. That's okay. But again, very intentional at the start. Part of the goal of this time together is to really allow the Lord, and it's not, if it's me, it's a waste of time. Allow the Lord to motivate us to do what he would have us to do this summer, to really try to put Jesus Christ in front of people and to give him an opportunity to touch lives. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for just the incredible things that you are doing in the Amazon jungles of Peru, Paraguay, Ecuador, Colombia, all throughout that region. Thank you just for the brief video that we saw and what an incredible encouragement it is to us just to to hear and see the good fruit that is coming from the labors of so many of our sisters and brothers thank you lord god for our partnership with the peppers with mepi with all that you are doing there even in a small way and as ted prayed we just continue to ask for your blessing on that work father god we also thank you so much that you have called us to the city of Philadelphia. This is where you have placed us. And Lord, it's so exciting to see what you are doing in those regions of South America. But Father, we also really want to have a heart and a vision for what you are doing in the city of Philadelphia. Father, we thank you for placing us here, right in the heart of the city. And Father, I pray that in this time that we will spend together and in the upcoming weeks and months, God, I just pray that you would give us your heart for this city and for the people in this city. 
Father, I was walking around and praying on Friday, and Lord, so much of what I saw just broke my heart. It was so obvious. It didn't require any, any hard looking or searching. Lord, just so many lives that were broken and so many lives, Lord, that clearly did not have the hope of Jesus. And Father, I just was so reminded that if it was breaking my heart, I can't even imagine, Lord, what this city does for your heart. And Lord, I was reminded of Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and weeping over it, weeping over it as he looked at Jerusalem and declared over Jerusalem the many, many efforts that you had made to reach out to them. And yet, Lord, they had turned away from you. They had turned a deaf ear to you. And Jesus looked at that city and he wept. And so, Father, I know that there are so many things in the city of Philadelphia that just break your heart. But, Father, we are, we are convinced that you are still reaching out, that you are still pursuing, that you are still giving an opportunity for folks to find you. And Father, we know that you want to be found. And so, Lord, in this, this brief time that we will spend together today, I just ask, Lord God, that your spirit would be at work in each one of us and that your spirit, Lord God, would really just continue to put in our heart your heart for this city. Lord, the, the efforts that we make this summer on, on the grand scale of the city, on the grand scale of, of uh, the nation, God, they will seem very small. But Lord, we know that if you are present and that if you are at work, there's no limit to what you can do. And so, Lord, that, that's what we're putting our trust in. We're not putting our trust in ourselves in what we're going to try to put together on Friday nights and Sunday mornings, even though you expect us, Lord God, to put forth an effort. But Lord, we're really, we're putting our trust in you. We're putting our trust in you. And we are just crying out for you to show mercy. We are asking you, Father, to show mercy and to touch lives. To touch lives. And so we pray now, Lord, as we spend some time looking at your scriptures, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. We're going to begin by looking at three brief passages from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 16. And we're just going to read one verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Then we're going to read a couple verses from Matthew 17 and a couple verses from Matthew 20. And of course, as we read these three passages, you will see a strong connection between them. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now turn with me one chapter to Matthew chapter 17, reading now verses 22 and 23. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was up in the far north. He was in Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 17, he's in Galilee, a little bit further south, still in the north, but a little bit further south. And this is what he said in Matthew 17, verses 22 to 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And at this point, he is on his way to Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17, 18, and 19. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside 
And he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Well, obviously, as we were reading these three passages together, you see that they are incredibly similar. And as Jesus was making his way from the far north, working his way south, and ultimately arriving in Jerusalem, three different occasions, he was telling his disciples, this is what is going to happen. And although they're very similar, a little bit more detail is given to us, particularly in the final of the three. Now, why was Jesus doing this? Why was Jesus on three different occasions as he and his disciples were making their way to Jerusalem? Why was he doing this? Well, of course, in part, he was doing this to prepare them. He was doing this to prepare them. From all eternity past, he and the Father and the Spirit knew that this moment in history would come. They knew that this moment in history would come and that Jesus would go into Jerusalem and all of the things that he said would happen in these three passages, they would in fact happen. But up to this point, Jesus understood that his disciples probably had no capacity to see that coming. And it's interesting because in a few minutes we're going to look at some of the reactions to these three passages we just read. Even as Jesus is telling them this is what is going to happen, they had a hard time believing it. They had a hard time accepting it. It seems so incredibly unimaginable to them. And some people wonder if at the times that Jesus was saying these things, that maybe they thought he was speaking in a parable. Maybe they thought he was speaking metaphorically because he had spoken that way before. Maybe they thought there was some way to avoid this, that maybe this was just one possible future that lay ahead of them. But the one thing that was clear is that even on these three occasions, as Jesus is preparing his disciples and letting them know, we are going to Jerusalem and this is what is going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be betrayed by the very leaders of our people. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are going to betray him. They're going to condemn him to death, and then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. Specifically, they're going to hand him over to the Romans. And the Romans are going to mock him, and they're going to flog him, and they're going to crucify him. But you probably saw each one of these three passages that we read ended with the exact same phrase. But on the third day, he will rise. On the third day, he will rise. It seems as if because of everything that Jesus says before that phrase in these three passages, that the disciples either didn't hear that or couldn't hear that or couldn't respond to that. Because all they could respond to was the horror in their minds of what he was saying before that. That he was going to be betrayed. That he was going to be handed over. That he was going to be considered deserving of death. And he was going to suffer unimaginably. Many of you have heard it, but at that time, the most painful, the most agonizing form of execution that the Roman Empire had was crucifixion. And it was reserved for slaves and for political criminals, the worst of the worst. So by the time in these three passages that Jesus gets to the final phrase, and on the third day, he will rise or he will be raised, at that point the disciples probably were not even listening. Because everything that they had heard up to that phrase 
was probably more than they could possibly handle. So in part, Jesus was telling this to his disciples on three different occasions. Each stage, they were getting closer to Jerusalem because he wanted to prepare them for this. But I believe also on these three occasions he was saying this because this is the absolute centerpiece of our faith and of our life. If someone asks you what, it, what is the most central component of who you are, what is the absolute focus of your existence, your being, your hope, your life, you know, I think you could pick any one of those three passages and probably adequately say, this is it. This is it. This is the absolute centerpiece of my life. This is the absolute core of who I am and what I live for and why I exist. You know, sometimes we as followers of Jesus, we get accused of talking about Jesus too much. I hope that's what we're being accused of. I'm afraid that in the time and in the culture that we're living in, maybe we're not talking about him enough. But there have been times that the unbelieving world looks at us and says, well, all you talk about is Jesus. All you talk about is Jesus. Isn't one hour on a Sunday morning, isn't that enough? Maybe, you know, an hour on a Wednesday night with an hour on a Sunday morning, isn't that enough? Well, unfortunately, for many people, that is enough. For many people, that is enough. But my hope is that if someone were to ask me, you know, what, what is your reason to exist? What is your purpose? What is your absolute core? I hope I could turn to any one of these three passages and honestly say, this is it. This is it. This is the absolute core and centerpiece of everything. Now the title for the sermon this morning, I don't know if it's up behind me, it's actually a Greek word. It's called kerygma. And this was something that they talked about early on at seminary, and like many of the words, many of them English words, as well as other words, I had no idea what that meant. And I was too embarrassed to raise my hand in class and say, what does that mean? Because that was happening a lot in my early years at seminary. But oftentimes it was English words that the professors were using that I had no idea what they meant. Adumbration, I'll never forget Sinclair Ferguson talking about the adumbration of Christ in the Old Testament. No idea what that word meant. No idea what that word meant. Well, they talked about kerygma, and I had no idea what that was, and it took me a while to understand it. So you're going to learn it today. I imagine you're probably not going to hear it in conversation this afternoon. You probably won't hear it in your workplace or wherever you will find yourself tomorrow. But again, it's an incredibly helpful word. Words are, 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 are worthy to be used if they are helpful. We don't need to use words to try to obscure truth or try to hide truth or try to show how intelligent we think we are. But sometimes there are words that are incredibly helpful. And the word kerygma or kerygma is a helpful word because what it means, it means what is preached, what is declared, the message. Jesus used it twice, and he talked about the message of the kerygma of Jonah and that that was enough for the city of Nineveh to repent. The Apostle Paul uses it six times. And every time he uses it, he is talking about the absolute center of his teaching and his ministry. On one occasion, he puts it in parallel to the word gospel. So in other words, if you had to boil down what is the absolute core of our teaching, what is the absolute most central aspect of what we are trying to share with folks, the message, what is to be proclaimed. That is the kerygma. The first sermon of the early church is found in Acts chapter 2. It's an incredibly profound sermon. It's a fairly long sermon. We're only going to read a couple verses from it. So in the very first sermon that was preached in that very first church, this was in the center of what the Apostle Peter preached. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Doesn't that sound a lot like the three passages we read in Matthew? As the Apostle Peter is preaching the first sermon of the first church, right there in the heart of his message is that kerygma, that core, that central teaching. And that is what we want for ourselves as well. Now what we know is there are a thousand ways to preach the gospel. Absolutely true. There are a thousand ways to get to the gospel. Absolutely true. You know, we may think of Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts chapter 17 where he walks around a city filled with pagan idols and he uses one of those idols as the introduction to his sermon. Men of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious because you have Idols to every god. In fact, you even have an idol to the unknown god. Well, let me tell you and make known to you this unknown god. So even though this is the absolute center, even though this is the absolute core of what we are and what we are trying to share, there's many, many ways to get there. But if we forget that this is the core then the problem is we may never get there. We may never get there. And that's part of the challenge that I want to give us today. We want to make sure that we are reminded this is it. This is the heart of the message to be proclaimed. This is the heart of the message to be declared. This is the kerygma. If you had to boil down the gospel into one or two sentences, this is it. And even though there's a thousand ways to get there, ultimately this is where we want to get. Because ultimately this is what people need to hear. And so again, you don't have to start with this. Maybe you will. There's a lot of ways to get there. But if we forget that this is it, then we may never get there. And we may never even really have it as a goal. And then it kind of gets lost. And so what we want to do is we want to ask the Lord to make us available to be used by him. Lord, show me in this conversation with this person, how do I get here? And he will be delighted to show you. He will be delighted to show you. Now, there's all sorts of, of people that you encounter. There's people in your family that unless something really tragic happens, you're going to have multiple conversations with co-workers, neighbors, that you're probably going to have long-term relationship with. The Lord may show you that you don't necessarily have to get here in a single conversation because unless something completely unforeseen happens, you're going to have multiple conversations with them. But you still want to have in your heart, Lord, this is where I've got to get. This is the heart. Now, for a stranger that you meet that you are never going to meet again, your approach has to be different. Because unless the Lord orchestrates it, you're never going to see that person again. So you don't have the open-endedness of saying, well, I'm probably going to have multiple conversations with this person over the next couple months. And so you have to approach, how do I get to this a little differently? 
because you realize your time in conversation with that person is very, very limited. So the kind of outreach that we're talking about today and the kind of outreach we're going to be doing this summer, as we say every summer, this is only one type of outreach. This is not the only way to get to this centerpiece of the gospel. But it is one way that we need to be actively pursuing. That's why I've been, we've been doing this for years. You know, when I came into Living Word in 89 and 90, doing outreach was a regular part of what this community was doing. It was simply what we did because it was one of the ways that we showed folks who Jesus is. So what we will do this summer on Friday nights next door and on Sunday mornings behind me, that's one way that we will endeavor to get to this kerygma, to get to this central truth that the Son of Man came and he was betrayed and he was considered worthy of death and he was mocked and flogged and crucified, but on the third day he was raised to life. Remember, that's the truth that we're trying to get to. That's the truth that the unbelieving world needs to hear. So when we are out there on a Friday night or when we are back there on a Sunday morning, we don't have the luxury of a long-term relationship that you might have with a member of your family. And so we've got to try to get to that quickly if the Lord opens that door. But we've got to remember this is what we are trying to get to. This truth transformed us. This truth transformed us. And we want to give the Lord an opportunity to use this truth to transform others. Well, let's go back to Matthew 16 and to look at an initial response. So remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew tells us that Jesus began to tell the disciples this is what is going to happen. And look at Peter's response. Now, again, Peter was a guy at this point that had been hanging out with Jesus for about three, three and a half years. So if anyone was in a prime position to understand what Jesus was all about, to understand why Jesus came into the world, it certainly would have been Peter or one or the other of, of the twelve. And as Peter is hearing these words for the first time, remember this is the first of the three times recorded for us, this is Peter's response. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Well, you know that's not going to end well. <laughs> Anytime we feel like we're in a position to rebuke the Lord, we're clearly on a sinking ship. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, or possibly, Lord, have mercy. This shall never happen to you. So as Jesus is telling the twelve, this is what's going to happen to me, it was so impossible for Peter to accept it, he absolutely said to Jesus, no way. No way. Now, in a very different context, we need to brace ourselves regularly for that response. When we endeavor to put the charisma of the gospel in front of people, when we endeavor to make it all about Jesus, when we endeavor to make him the centerpiece of who we are and what we are sharing and encouraging someone else to consider that as their life choice, many people will say, no way. No way. I don't believe that. That makes me angry. I reject that. I want nothing to do with that. We need to understand that is one of the responses that comes. I mean, this is Peter, and that was his initial reaction. Peter, who had been with Jesus all these many years. Peter, who had been pulled aside with James and John on a couple of different occasions. Peter, who was part of that inner circle. His initial response to this truth was no way. I reject this. So why are we ever surprised 
if when we put this in front of an unbeliever, sometimes this is their response. Sometimes this is their response. No way. I don't believe it. I don't want any part of it. I absolutely reject it. So as we are preparing to try to get to this point with folks this summer, we need to remember that many will respond like Peter did. Many will push back. Many will become argumentative. Many will object. And obviously there's a million more reasons. Peter just couldn't embrace it because he really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. A couple verses earlier, you probably remember, Peter just declared, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So what was really frying Peter's circuits was that the Christ would suffer this way. Now, when we present the truth of who Jesus is to the unbelieving world, oftentimes why they push back, why they reject, why they say no way, it isn't because they're horrified that the eternal Son of God would die on a Roman cross. They have all sorts of other reasons for objection. But that is still a common response. It is still a common response. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 23. The sharpest rebuke, probably, of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Moments earlier, Peter had just declared, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus is looking at him and saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And you do not have my interest in mind, but only the interests of fallen, broken, sinful humanity. And it's so important we remember this. Because that flesh and blood person that's standing in front of you that you are talking to, maybe it's a couple of people, maybe it's one, that flesh and blood person that's standing in front of you that is resisting the gospel, that is rejecting the gospel, that is just completely turned off at the mention of the name Jesus Christ, that is not the only thing that is in operation in that conversation. There is the dominion of darkness. There is Satan who opposes Jesus at every possible opportunity. Anytime that we bring Jesus up in a conversation, anytime we try to put that core central truth in front of someone and they push back, yes, there is a flesh and blood person that is pushing back, but there is something that stands behind that. It's interesting because Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Jesus rebukes Satan and says, Satan, get behind me. I am going to Jerusalem and you will not stop me. I am accomplishing the purposes of my Father and everything that you have thrown at me and will throw at me will be completely impotent to stop me from accomplishing my Father's purposes. But again, it's so important for us to remember this because so many times, because we see the flesh and blood person in front of us and because we hear with our ears their verbal response, that is all that our attention is captivated with, is that physical person. But remember, there is a spiritual force. There is a spiritual influence that is unseen. And as the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Ephesus, that is where our real battle is. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but our battle is with the powers and the principalities of the kingdom of the air. And it's very hard to remember that. When someone is fighting you hard, when someone is blaspheming truth, when someone is disagreeing with what we hold absolutely dear, it's very hard not to get really emotionally wanting to retaliate to that flesh and blood person. But that will accomplish nothing. 
that will accomplish nothing. We need to engage the real enemy. And we do that primarily through prayer. You know, oftentimes when we send people out, we say, go in groups of two or three. And one of the most effective ways to engage someone in conversation as a group of two or three is have only one talking and have the other one or two praying. Praying silently. Praying silently against whatever influence is keeping that person in darkness. And so again, we're going to talk about some practical things in a couple minutes here, but that's one of the things to keep in mind. When we send groups out in groups of two or three, one of the main reasons we do that is because we realize the real battle is not with, you know, eloquent verbal argument and incredible apologetic argument. It's the spiritual realm. And so as one person is talking primarily, having the other one or two people praying for that person during that conversation, that's one of the most effective things that we can do. But don't be surprised. When we put Jesus in front of people, when we put the heart of the gospel in front of people, many people are going to be very, very angry are going to be very, very argumentative, are going to be very, very disagreeable. That's simply what is going to come as Jesus is proclaimed. Looking now at the passage that we read in Matthew 17, the last phrase of verse 23, and the disciples were filled with grief. You see, here Peter is not no way, this can't happen. I'm not going to let this happen. Here, it's starting to sink in a little more. Wow, this is the second time he's telling us this. This is really going to happen. And Matthew just says it so simply. They were utterly grieved. Had a great, great sorrow in their hearts. Now, of course, as we put it in the context of the disciples, they were grieved because they loved Jesus passionately. I mean, they had left everything to follow him. And they did not want to see someone they loved this much suffer that much. And so there was just an incredible pain in their heart as they began to understand what Jesus was saying. And of course, later they would begin to understand that the reason this incredibly sorrowful event was needed was because of their sin and was because of the sin of all humanity. There is an absolute appropriate response to the cross of Christ that is one of sorrow and one of grief because it was our sin that put Jesus there. It was our rebellion, our obstinance, our everything that's what put him there. And that is sorrowful. So sometimes when we put Jesus in front of people, the Spirit will be at work. And we will encounter people who are broken, who are feeling the weight of sin. Who are incredibly heavy-hearted. They may not even know it. They may not even be able to put it into words. But as you talk to them about Jesus, sometimes that incredible presence of the Lord is going to come on them, and they're just going to start to break. And there's going to be sorrow. You know, the first time that someone shared the gospel with me, that's what happened. I just had the greatest sorrow I had ever had before. I'd never experienced sorrow like this. Because for the first time, I was starting to understand the weight of my sin. I was starting to understand what I deserved for my life of sin. And I was just, I was just crushed. And every time I thought about the gospel, I just wept. And my parents, I was only 15, my parents were concerned about me. They didn't know what was going on. And I couldn't put into words what was happening. So the first time that I heard the gospel, it just brought up an incredible sorrow as the Spirit of God was at work in me. 
So sometimes when we get to that, that core truth, sometimes when we, we get to really putting in front of someone the heart of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did, sometimes the response will just be sorrow and heartbreak. And what an incredible opportunity you have at that moment to minister the compassion, the love, the mercy, and the kindness of Christ to that person. There were many times Jesus encountered the brokenhearted. And we see some of his most tender ministry at those moments. There was times he encountered those who opposed him. And we see a very different type of response. But when we put the heart of the gospel in front of someone, oftentimes they will just be overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. And oftentimes it will be the Spirit working in them, showing them sin maybe for the first time, showing them the consequence of sin for the first time, helping them maybe to realize that it was their sin that put Christ on the cross. But there's so many brokenhearted. There's so many brokenhearted in our city. And we know that what they need is the ministry and the healing that only Jesus can provide. And so as we get to that point in a conversation, be sensitive to see, is the person resisting? Is the person saying no way? Is the person looking for a fight? Well, what Jesus says is, you know what, just shake the dust off your feet and at a certain point just move on. That's okay. But is the person really feeling the weight of what you're saying? Is it really starting to, to grip them? And is there an opportunity to be the, the vessel of Christ ministering to that person? The last passage, Matthew chapter 20, it's interesting because Matthew doesn't tell us any response. In Matthew chapter 20, after verse 19, he doesn't say that the disciples had any response. So there's no recorded response for us. Now, I imagine that when that third time that Jesus told them, I imagine there was a response. But as we read the Gospel of Matthew, as we read the perfect account of that in Matthew, there was no response. And again, you know the next thing that I'm going to say. There are many times when you put the truth of who Jesus is in front of them, and outwardly, there's no response. They don't get angry. They don't try to fight you. They don't start to come under the conviction of the, of, of the, the Lord. They don't show any interest. They're not mad. They're just nothing. There's no response. And again, we need to realize that sometimes that is what we will see. But what we absolutely know is true, that is way beyond the passage in Matthew, so this is not from the text at all, is that the truth of who Jesus is always has an impact. It always has an impact. We may not see it. We may not experience it in that conversation. But the one thing by faith that we are absolutely assured of is any time we put the truth of who Jesus is in front of someone, even if outwardly there is absolutely no response, there is inwardly. And so don't be discouraged. We walk by faith, not by sight. We want to see the outward response. We want to see repentance, and that's what we are praying for. But when we don't see that, when we do not see an outward response, by faith we still believe the truth of who Jesus is is at work in that person's heart. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but our dear, dear brother John, before he was saved, was at a mall. I think he was 17, 18 years old. And the night before, he had prayed to the God who he didn't really believe in, wasn't even sure was there, and said, God, if you're real, you have to prove it to me. You have to show me you're real. Because at this point, he was having a, an atheist crisis. And the next day in the mall, a young woman walked up to him, a total stranger. He'd never laid eyes on her before. She said, look, 
The Lord wanted me to tell you he heard your prayer and he is real. Well, inwardly, John is totally, totally freaked out. Outwardly, no response. He just walked away. Later, when he accepted the Lord, he tried to find that girl. Couldn't. It was just a stranger in a mall. So from her perspective, I've often wondered if she's still alive. I've often wondered if she ever even thinks of that conversation or if it was just one of many conversations because she was probably the type of person that made herself available and had numerous conversations. But I wonder if she ever even thinks about that conversation with John and probably just thought, well, you know, Lord, I was faithful to say what you told me to, and clearly it had no impact on that guy's life. Well, in heaven, obviously, the two of them are going to get together, and they're going to share some amazing stories. So outwardly, there was no response. Outwardly, John was so freaked out, he couldn't even speak. And of course, he didn't want to let her know that what she had said was absolutely 100% accurate and that God had just totally read his mail. So outwardly, there was nothing. But inwardly, a life was being transformed. So there are times when we put the truth of who Jesus is in front of people and outwardly, there will be nothing. Outwardly, there will be nothing. But by faith, we are absolutely convinced that the Word of God is always at work. But it probably is less likely to be at work if we never say it. God can do whatever He wants. God can save a person under a banana tree, you know, while they're asleep, if He wants to. And sometimes He does. But chances are that the Word of God is much more likely to be at work in someone's heart if we, as Jesus' followers, are trying to share that Word with the people we encounter. Of course, He can save people without us. Of course, He can give them dreams, and He does that. And praise God, give Him the glory for doing that. But as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, you know, how will they know if they do not hear, and how will they hear if it's not preached, and how will they be preached if someone is not sent. The normal way that God brings people to himself is by people who already know him talking about him to people who don't. That's the normal way that people are brought into the kingdom. I don't know all of your stories. I know some of your stories. But for most of us, that's how we were brought into the kingdom. For most of us, there was someone or maybe a group of people that told us about Jesus and either right away or eventually, we said, yes, I believe. That's the normal way that the word of God penetrates the human heart. That's the system that God has set up. So we want to do everything we can to be available vessels. To say, okay, Lord, use me. Use me. And so that gets us to the practical aspect of this message, which is that sheet that I was telling you about. That sheet that I was telling you about that many of us look at and say, oh, I'm sorry that sheet's coming out again. But some of us look at us and say, wow, I can't wait. Well, I just want to go over a couple of things. We as, as leaders, both elders and the larger group of leaders here at Living Word, we have been talking and we have been praying in preparation for our summer outreach. And of course, as you see on that list, the very first date is this Friday. Friday, June the 10th at 7 o'clock. So we will not be on Zoom for prayer from 7 to 8 because instead we will be next door in that lot that the Lord graciously gave to us by forcing the city to tear those horrible buildings down. You know, for years and years and years, Bob Dreer prayed, Lord, give us that property. Well, I don't think it was quite the way that Bob envisioned it, but the Lord has given it to us. All of the times that we've been out there, We've never had anyone say, hey, you don't have a right to be here. You don't actually own this because we don't actually own it. They want like $4 million for it or something like that. So even if we had $4 million, I don't think we'd buy a patch of gravel for $4 million. But anyways, the Lord has given it to us. The Lord has given it to us. And so we're going to take full advantage of that space. Now, again, it would be great if they knocked down the Subway sandwich shop. It would be great if some other things happen and maybe that will come. But for now, that's the best space we have. We talked about the parking lot. We talked about the plaza across the street. We talked about the space in front of Subway. These were some of the other suggestions. But at the end of the day, when we really looked hard at each one of those spaces, that still is the best space. It's not perfect, 
It's not the palace at Versailles. It's not, you know, it's, it's an urban gravel lot. But we're going to do what we can. You know, Ephraim, faithfully, faithfully, he's going to get the weed whacker. He's going to cut the weeds down. We're going to get out there. We're going to pick up all the trash. I actually bought Christmas lights. We're going to string up Christmas lights. We're going to project some images on the far wall. We're going to rearrange the chairs a little differently. We're going to try to make the space as inviting as possible. We are going to try to do that. But, but at the end of the day, it's still a gravel lot. I mean, it, it's still what it is. And what's truly going to make that space beautiful is you. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. As the people of God, you being there, that's going to make that space beautiful. You know what? And when the Lord's at work, people are not going to see how gritty that space really is. When the Lord is at work, people are going to see his beauty because that's what makes us beautiful. I mean, gosh, I'm not, I'm not beautiful, not even close. It's the presence of the Lord in us. That's what makes us beautiful. And, you know, with all that this country wrestles with in terms of, of relationships between different skin color and different ethnicity, you know, just us being together in public, not being all black, not being all Hispanic, not being all white, not being all Asian, but being an incredible blend. You know, people are going to say, who are these guys? What are they possibly doing together? What, what is this group of people possibly doing together? So that's our primary space. That's our primary space. If you have some ideas about how to make it more beautiful, we're all ears. Like I say, we're going to string up some Christmas lights on the fence. We're going to whack the weeds. We're going to pick up the trash. We're going to project images on the far wall. We're going to put the chairs more in a circle to make it seem kind of like small groups. We're going to do what we can. But again, you are what's going to make that space beautiful. So more than anything, if we want the city to see the presence of the Lord, the people of God need to be present. The people of God need to be present. And again, I know most of you work much harder than me. And I know Friday nights you guys are, are oftentimes tired and weary, and it's going to be hot and they cut down the trees. In some ways, that's great because we'll have much more view on the parkway. But in other ways, we lose some shade. I know Carl is thinking, wasn't it hot enough? <laughs> so I know there are challenges. I know there are challenges. But again, part of what we're doing today is trying to allow the Lord to get us excited, to get us motivated, to just show up and see what he'll do. To just show up and see what he'll do. So again, what we are going to do each Friday is we are going to amplify worship. That's what we've done in the past. We're going to put our portable worship system out there, and we're just going to worship Jesus. We're going to turn it up as loud as Carl will allow it to go without blowing the portable sound system, and we're going to point speakers in the two directions, and we're just going to sing as loudly as we can that Jesus is Lord. We're going to sing what we just read, okay? So if that's what you want to do on a Friday night, you are 100% free to do that. If you just want to show up and publicly worship the Lord, stand on a sidewalk and close your eyes and lift up your hands to the Lord, if that's what you want to do, you are 100% released to do that because that is powerful. That is powerful. Because people are going to say, what is that crazy person doing? And why are they doing it? So if that's what you want to do, then that's what you are free to do. We are going to set up a prayer table, definitely in front of our building, maybe on the other side as well. If you really want to try to offer and engage people in prayer, you are free to do that. We want you to do that. If you want to ask folks who are walking by, is there anything that I can pray for you about, then you are free and released to do that. Some of you really feel a calling to hand out tracts. And if that's what you want to do, you are released to do that. We will make sure we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tracts 
give them all out. If that's what you want to do to show folks that Jesus is alive in the city, then you are free to do that. Grab a stack of tracts and put one in everyone's hand who will take it. We are also going to do some food giveaway. We'll have bottles of water. We'll have self-contained snacks because we're still a little conscious of COVID. We may do some, some frozen something because we can't get the big tub of water ice like we used to, um, but we've got some other possible ideas that we'll work on. So if you just want to bless the city by offering folks a bottle of water or offering them a snack, you are free to do that. Some of you really want to and love approaching people and starting a conversation with them. We want you to do that. If standing in the lot and worshiping when there's so many people walking by just is like, wait, I want to be doing something else, you are free to do that. And what we were talking about as elders is this year, what we will actually do is we will divide you into groups of two or three. For those of you who want to, we're going to divide you into two groups of two or three, and you are free to head to Love Park, to head to Logan Circle, wherever you want to go. If that's what the Lord has put a passion in your heart to do, that's what we want you to do. We want you to go out and try to engage people. So in other words, I hope what you're hearing is we want you here. We want you to be present so that the Lord will be seen. But what you do when you are here is what you are free to do. We're not telling you you have to do this or you have to do that. Worship, pray, hand out tracts, hand out food, go talk to people, do what you want. The one thing that we do not want you to do is please don't talk to each other. I know that sounds terrible, but please don't talk to each other. We know that you guys love each other. And we love the relationships the Lord has given us here. And we are so grateful for that. But what we are asking is for that one and a half to two hours on Friday night, talk to Jesus or talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus. That's what we're asking of you. Okay? Now, of course, if you're a parent with a young child, you've got to talk to the young child. I mean, obviously, you're hearing. But what I'm saying is don't just use it as a time to catch up. Because, you know, if we're worshiping the Lord... And we're really inviting the presence of the Lord, and people are walking by, but five or six of us are just standing in a circle talking to each other. You know, what are they going to say? Well, I guess, you know, worship is kind of important, maybe not. You know, some people sing, some people are just chatting with you. You know, is, is that really inviting the city to see how glorious Jesus is? So again, I, I just, that's the one thing we're, we're strongly encouraging you. Please don't. Don't talk to each other. A quick hello a quick, hey, how are you doing? Of course. But once we start, we really want our focus to be on Jesus or on, on trying to engage people who are stopped or who are walking by. And afterwards, absolutely. We were down in Center City last night at 10 o'clock. Everything is open. Everyone's here. So at 9, 9.30, 10, you didn't have enough time to talk to your sisters and brothers at Living Word. Go someplace and talk. Once we're done, talk as much as you want. But please, please, please don't talk to each other once we've started the outreach. Really make a concerted effort to be present with the Lord. But do whatever the Lord's called you to do. We love people sitting at the prayer table. We love people handing out tracts. We love people approaching people. We love people standing on the sidewalk, lifting up their hands. Whatever the Lord has released you to do, please do that. Now, if it is possible, and you can be here at 6.30, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. There is a bit of setup. And, you know, the crazy thing about that lot is every time we pick up all the trash in it, I don't know, all of a sudden the next day it's filled with trash again. So just because we cleaned the lot last Friday doesn't mean that it's probably going to be really clean the next Friday. And unfortunately, you find a lot of very unsavory things in that lot. So sometimes the cleanup is easy, sometimes the cleanup is, yeah, takes a little while. So if you can, and if you can't, that's fine, but if you can get here by 6.30, we certainly can always use the help setting up, particularly people who are good at stringing lights. I don't know what they're going to look like. If you have a decorative touch, please bring them. 
please bring them. So if you can be here at 6.30, that is much appreciated. But if you can only get here at 7, that's fine as well. In terms of Sundays, Sundays is a little bit different. And uh, just a couple of quick changes to Sunday. Normally we gather in Fellowship Hall and we pray, and then we go to the park behind me, and we have worship, and we have a short teaching, and then we send groups out. Normally at that point we divide into groups, but we've noticed there's oftentimes a pretty significant lag. Again, we know you love each other, and we know that once the, the word is done and we send you out, you're like, oh, wow, I haven't seen Larry in a month. I wonder how he's doing. Hey, Larry, how are you doing? I really am glad to see. Okay, again, we want you to care about Larry, but just not at that precise moment. At that precise moment, we actually want you to be going out and talking to people. So what we are going to do is ask you to be here at 10, to gather in Fellowship Hall, and we will divide into groups in Fellowship Hall. So that way, when we are done next door, we just go out. Now, again, I, I, I'm, I'm the king of stall. I know it. There's few things in this life that make me more intimidated, more nervous than walking up to a total stranger and trying to talk to them about Jesus. So, you know, I see Hugo, and I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to go talk to someone about Jesus, but I'm going to talk to Hugo because, you know, he's my brother, and I want to hear how he's doing. We know that stall. And that's okay. It's okay to be a little bit intimidated. It's okay to be a little bit, you know, but we don't want to let that prevail. So what we're going to do this time is divide into groups in Fellowship Hall before we go out there. So that way, whoever is preaching, Ephraim or Carl, whoever is preaching, when they say, amen, let's go, you go. It's only an hour. It's only an hour. 168 hours in a week, 52 weeks in a year, two hours on two Sunday mornings, we're asking you to go out and try to talk to folks about Jesus. Now, I know for many of us, that's the hour that we fear the most. But as we take a step of faith, the Lord will honor us. You know, and some of you are like, well, I don't know how to do it. And that's okay. So one of the things we said is, you know, one of the best ways, we asked, we asked Ted Lewis, we asked Jose Ruiz, we asked some folks that are really good at engaging people. You know, how do you start a conversation? You know, and one of the most incredibly effective ways to start a conversation is just ask a really, really broad, open-ended question. So you see someone sitting on a park bench, and you just walk up to them, introduce yourself, and say, hey, what do you think about God? Chances are they'll have something to say. Now, maybe they'll just, you know, give you the first reaction, get away from me, may it never be, I don't want this. Okay, then find someone else. But, you know, one of the most effective ways to begin to have a conversation, is to listen. And so, come up with a totally open-ended question. You know, we're over here worshiping. What, what do you think about worship? What do you think worship is? You know, Jesus said he's the only way to God. What do you think about that? What do you think of hearing Jesus say that? So maybe even in your, your, your preparation, just have one or two open-ended questions that you're ready to ask someone. And then the great thing is, just let the Lord lead. You know where you're trying to get. You know the heart of what you're trying to get to. But oftentimes you get there by taking a long time listening first. You see, the person that you're talking to, you never met before. You know the unshakable truth, the unchangeable truth that they need to hear, but you don't necessarily know the best way to put that truth in front of them. Well, Jesus has known that person from all eternity past. Jesus knows the best way to put him in front of them. So ask an open-ended question and then start to listen. And then start to say, okay, Jesus, how should I share you with them? You know, when you look at the conversations that Jesus had recorded for us in the Gospels, he was always speaking directly into who that person was. Now, he didn't always need to listen to their audible voice. He just listened to the Father. And the Father showed, them, showed him who they were and what they needed. But one of the most disarming and, and, and in easy ways to begin a conversation that ultimately is going to end in Jesus is just ask an open-ended question and say, what do you think about, or have you ever heard of, or something like that, and then listen, and let the Spirit of God begin to show you who is standing in front of you, 
and the most effective way to share him with them. Okay? And the last thing, of course, the most important thing is to be praying. Hopefully you folks have been praying. We need to continue to pray. Because again, we can string up the most beautiful lights. We can make that place look like Versailles. And if we're not praying and the Lord is not present, it won't matter. It won't matter. And so please continue to pray. Pray for Friday nights. Pray for those Sunday mornings. Pray that the Lord would show up. You know, we've seen some incredible fruit over the past couple of years from our efforts in the lot next door, but I know all of us would love to see more. And so let's pray and just say, Lord, if it be your will, may we see more fruit from this. May we see more folks hearing, responding, turning to you. And if we're present, who knows what will do. If we're sitting at home watching TV, eh, the Lord may save that person on the sidewalk. But if you're there, it's probably a little bit more likely to happen. Probably a little bit more likely to happen. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, of course, we want to thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to look at your word. And Jesus, we just want to thank you so much that you did everything you could to prepare your disciples for what was completely unimaginable to them and what continues to just hold us in absolute awe and, 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 and just amazement that you would allow yourself to be betrayed, to be handed over, to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders, to suffer at the hand of the Gentiles, to be mocked and ridiculed and beaten and flogged and ultimately crucified. But Lord, in those three passages that we read, that not, was not the end because on the third day you were raised. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that that is the centerpiece of our lives. And we pray, Lord God, and all that we will be trying to do this summer, and of course, Lord, we want to pray for every other church and every other ministry that is endeavoring to, to, to minister to folks in this city. We just want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself known, that you would open eyes that are blind, that you would unstop ears that are deaf, that you would minister to them as the Son of Man, who was crucified and has risen. May we proclaim that. May we give folks an opportunity to hear that and see that. And may we see people respond. And Jesus, it's in your name and your name alone we pray these things. Amen.